This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some may find offensive. Your discretion is advised. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. Good afternoon. It is 2.02 p.m. Central Time. (laughs) I'm Leon Davis, and you're listening to Altitude Adjustment the twice a week podcast about people, politics, and professions. And I'm welcoming John and Eileen Connery uh, to join us this afternoon. Good afternoon. Good, Good afternoon. afternoon. I kept I kept thinking something's not right. Something's not right. <laughs> I mean, and here's, here's the note I normally leave myself to make sure that I check those audios to make sure it's on so that, so that we don't do this. Um, and then I guess all of the, um, and, and getting all, everything done, I kind of, space that out. So I apologize. We are now on track. uh, So people can hear sound. I apologize to anyone that was sitting there thinking that their hearing was gone. Uh, It's fine. (laughs) Uh, So let me uh, again, John, you were explaining who all was involved with uh, um, create helping you create this work of art. Yes, uh, it was definitely a family project. Uh, I wrote the book. And when you're when you're writing a book, you're you're writing it in your own vision. You think you know what you're saying, and you're hoping someone can kind of discern what you're saying. And then the editor will look at it and say, "Well, no, that's not right." And so they'll try to help polish it. Uh, Eileen is my editor in chief, and she was very instrumental in polishing it to the point to where a uh, a publisher would take a serious look at it. Uh, we were fortunate enough that uh, Dark Fraud Books did take a look at it. Um, once they decided to work with us, then it went to a different level, and Eileen worked hand-in-hand with their editor, and they they collectively, we got it to where um, we think it's a, it's a very good read. Uh, my daughter assisted with the design of the book, of, of the cover of the book, um, she also did a drawing, which is in the book, and it heads each chapter. It's, it's the house where, where Prudence and, and Theo uh, live. And um, she did a, a fantastic job. She went through several different drafts. Um, we're very, very proud of her, of what she did. And, and then Eileen's cousin took photographs of, of me that's on the back of the book. He's a professional photographer in Louisiana. Brian Bayamati is his name. And uh, we went to the Evangeline Oak in St. Martinville, Louisiana. And my father is from St. Martinville. And the Evangeline Oak is, is a, is a world-famous landmark. Um, we had a fantastic time there. He did some really good shots. He uh, made me look better than I am. Um, impossible. <laughs> impossible. <no. laughs> so so that's, those are the main... Um, players in the family who, who did this. My son also was reviewing it during the course, and he would give me some pointers as to what a younger audience might want. Thought, so thought, that that's it. I mean, So Leonard, didn't you mention that you uh, there was a nephew or a cousin that was also involved? No? Okay. My, my co- I'm sorry? Uh, my cousin, it was my cousin who was the photographer for yeah, his headshot. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, okay. For the heads. Brian Biamonte in Baton Rouge. Okay. And I do have to say the very first time I read John's book and he had been talking about this book for maybe 20 years and he suddenly had an opportunity where he could focus on it. But my very first read was, it was excellent. And I knew that it had tremendous potential. So he's talking about all the editing, but the content was there. The storyline was there. The characters were there. It was spot on. Very good. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to introduce your book there, John. Uh, The book is Project Azalea, Follow the Clues, Find the Peril. Uh, My protagonist is Prudence Jean-Baptiste. She is a single mother turned paralegal. She starts to work in her law firm and finds something she should not have. And um, it, it takes off from there. Uh, a lot of col- colorful characters. She relies on her family, new friends. Uh, she is fighting a white supremacist group. She's fighting her uh, greedy law firm, her crooked law firm, some greedy businessmen. 
And so there are a lot of different themes that run through the book. And, and it's when, when you look at it from that perspective, it seems kind of complicated, but, but as you read it, it all kind of folds into play. Um, so, you know, that, that's the elevator speech. I'm happy to elaborate if you want to, but that's, well, that's kind of the 30 elevator speech. Go ahead. Yeah. So there was a, um, um, trailer on about the book Yes. on the internet. I'm going to play that real quick. Oh, thank you. Yeah. This material is being presented via copyright disclaimer under section 107 of the copyright act of 1976. Allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, new reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Fair use is a use guys permitted guys by copyright here. statute that otherwise might be infringing. Right. <laughs> so we're we're back we're back live, uh, and I, you know I thought that was a, a really good uh, uh, promo for for the book, and and that's kind of like the first time I've really seen. Uh, I've worked with somebody who's who's had that kind of production for their book. So for over the past uh, couple of years is when you know I, I started getting more authors to come onto the show. And, you know, most of them, I just have the opportunity to show their book cover, but, you know, the opportunity to show an actual uh, commercial created for their book, I thought that was pretty good. So it was a lot of fun putting it together. Mm -hmm. How much input did you have into the into the video? Did you have any input there? Um, all of it. Oh, really? I, um, I, yeah, I drafted each scene uh, down to the second. Um, they came up with with uh, the, the people and they came up with the the copy uh, but I, I sketched it out kind of like in a screenplay fashion uh, they came in with the, the, the kind of the sparkling embers and they had the music uh, they found the visual but uh, I, I basically directed it and Eileen had some input in, in as well and it, it's really fun because um, I look at it as a hobby. Some people go out and buy a bass boat and go fishing, and and that that's what they do. What I did is is wrote a book, and I'm at the point now to where we're publicizing it a little bit more. Uh, the trailer helps with that. We're trying to go to uh, book festivals where we can, and we were very disappointed because the book festival in Louisiana at the end of October was uh, was canceled, uh, you know, for understandable reasons. Uh, same with the one in Texas, but we will be able to participate virtually with uh, at least the one in Texas. We do in Louisiana. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so both of those. So, you know, in, in this era of COVID, we, we do what we can. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun developing the trailer, a lot of fun developing the, the cover art, uh, developing the book. You know, it's not, 
it's not hap uh, it's not pleasant all the time. There's a lot of fits and starts, um, but I think the the final product is uh, is is worth it. Okay. So, do you think that um, that this is going to be a new family business where you're going to get into um, creating your own, you know, movie scenes and shorts and stuff? Maybe even turn your book into a movie. Is that is that you know, I, I have a friend of mine early on in the writing of this. I wanted some honest feedback and uh, I sent it to him and he's the kind of guy that would tell me to go bury it in the yard, never to be seen again. And and the first words out of his mouth was my wife wants to see the movie. So, you know, I would really like a second career. Um, it would be fun to write a screenplay, to develop a movie, to write sequels. And I develop Prudence in such a way to where she can grow mm -hmm. as a character. And uh, so I, th I think that would be fun. You know, I've already kind of started conceptualizing what a sequel might look like and jotted some notes down. And uh, so I've got some ideas where I want to take her. And I do want to write another book. Um, it's just full-time parenting and work and all those things kind of get in the way. And uh, now that we're empty nesters, we might have some more time to do that. But, uh, you know, with a full-time job, it's it's really difficult to sit down and have that focused time and, and the energy to do it. Uh, but but you've started. But I started. You did start the second book. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a question, Leonard? I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, I was just sitting here, and I was watching the trailer for the book. And we normally don't think of books having trailers as normally a movie. But I'm sitting here watching this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I definitely want to read the book, because by nature, I'm a reader. Uh, for Leon and I, our mother was an avid reader. Our father was an avid reader. Mm -hmm. So I think we both kind of picked up that habit. Uh, but I'm sitting here thinking, okay, when is the movie coming? <laughs> I think it would make an excellent movie. Not actually. soon enough. I, I think it would, and it, and I'm having uh, thoughts back to the movie The Firm with uh, Tom Cruise, mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, this could be that, but you know, New Orleans is a city, and, it, and I, I'm assuming it's set in New Orleans, right? It is. And New Orleans is a city that, like you said, amongst the voodoo, amongst the mystery, New Orleans is a city. When you think of New Orleans, you think of all that. And it's just, when I think of our, word, our world today, we talk about greed and corruption, as mm -hmm. you talked about in the trailer. Do you have a question? And that's what our world a lot of is. No, I, I was just making comments. I oh, didn't okay. have a question. Okay. I was just making comments about that when, when seeing that trailer Well, and, and just thinking about your book. Okay. His question was, when is the movie coming out? Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, so Eileen, are you are you possibly going to write a book? Um, did you you know since you've seen the book writing process, do you have a book in you? I well, actually, I started a book when I was twelve. Okay. About, believe it or not, handwritten when I was twelve years old, of course, and I never finished it. It's about four chapters, uh, very twelve-year-old like. Okay. Um, but I still have it. I still have the handwritten pages and I've transcribed it and I've thought about ways to continue it. It would be a different, it would be very unique if I go through with the process the way I'm envisioning it. Uh, but yes, I would like to write a book at some point. Um, at the moment, I'm book editing for other authors, which I really enjoy. Um, and I think my public relations background allowed me to um, edit for the author. I think it's so important to edit in their voice and not change the feel of anything, um, but just to kind of polish it up a little bit so that they are happier with it. I've had some authors who say, um, I love my book, but I don't feel like it's quite professional enough. Take it to a, a whole nother level. But um, I have to say, I really enjoyed, John's book was the first real book that I edited. And I loved it because um, it was something truly, we've, we've been married 20, 
two, five, seven years. You know, it's been that long, <laughs> I was huh? Thinking, <laughs> I was thinking how many years we were in the house. I'm glad she struggled <laughs> with that. Yeah. No, we've been in the house 22 years, and that's what the number I had in my head. Um, we've been married 27 years, almost. Next month will be 27. Oh, and right. right. Thank you. But we've been together 33 years. So most of the time we've been together, he's talked about this book. So I was just so thrilled that he could finally take all these ideas from characters and plot lines and put it together in this format and finally publish it. So there's something concrete, you know, instead of talking about it, actually make it happen. There's so many people out there who have a book in them. They have a story to share. And most won't get started. They never know how to get it. They either don't know how to get started or life gets in the way and they just don't have the time for it. But I do think most people have a story to share that somebody would be interested in reading and, and it could make a difference. So we'll see. We're going to focus on Project Azalea first. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. So how, how far? So when was the book released? April, April of this year. How how are the early, just a few months ago? Yeah, how are the early returns on that? The early returns are. Well, I told Eileen when I first started this that as long as one person that I don't know came across the book and found it interesting and bought it, to me that that's the success. You know, I, I didn't write it to become a um, you know, full time author. I, I wrote it because. As Eileen said, it's something that I had in my mind a long time ago. Uh, you both mentioned your avid readers. I'm, I'm an avid reader. I've got some famous authors. And as, as a lawyer, I read and write all day and I edit and, and I deal with contracts. And so you think, okay, well, we're lawyers. We read not write all day. I read mystery books at night. I can write a book. No. <laughs> There's a lot more to it today. Huh? It is it. It is a different discipline altogether. Uh, you learn a lot about the writing process. You learn about how what you're putting down might be perceived by others, whether or not you're writing it in such a way to where they understand what you're trying to get across and not have it jumbled. Um, you've got character arcs, you've got plot lines, you've got intersecting plot lines, uh, you've got crescendos and you have the, the build up to the crescendo and the ramp down from the crescendo. So I, I learned a lot about the writing part of it. Um, and I tried to put myself in the reader's shoes when I wrote it. And I wrote it truthfully. I wrote it for my own amusement. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was going to publish it. I didn't know I was, if I was going to self-publish. I didn't know if I was going to find a publisher. And I just wrote it to, to amuse myself. And I, I think if you do that, if you if you don't overthink it when you're first starting it, I think it comes a little bit easier to you. I mentioned in my author's notes that I saw a, an interview with Sidney Sheldon. And I thought it was a fascinating interview because he was talking about how he writes his process. And he developed characters and he had them in his mind for years but for a particular book that he mentioned, I can't recall the name now, it's in my author's notes. He said, I've got, got the baseline of a character and I'm gonna let this character tell the story. And so that was the method I employed and it was just kinda took off from there. It's like, okay, I've got Theo, I got his mother. Where does she work? Let's describe that. Where is she gonna go? Let's describe that. Who does she run into in the office? What is that? Is that person just someone who happens to be in the office or is it someone that can be critical in the in the story? Can they have a part? Now, I'll tell you something real quick. It's it's fun. Uh, my son was taking guitar lessons when he was younger and I would take him to guitar lessons and it's about 30 minutes. So I'd spend time catching up with friends, talking with them. And a friend of mine said, uh, put me in the book. And I'm thinking, OK, I would I put him in the book. So I thought of him. And I said, all right, do you mind doing this, that, and the other? And I don't want to have any spoilers here. And he says, no, I'm good with that. And uh, so I found a place for him in the book, and I created a character for him. 
And then Eileen says, well, where's my character? <laughs> and I said, what? She goes, I don't think you heard me. Where's my oh, character? I didn't say it like that. <laughs> That's how I heard it. <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> so I developed a character for her. And that character comes at a very pivotal part in the book and how one of the plot lines crosses into the other and how they come together. And so to, to me, that, that was a lot of fun, just developing things like that. And um, I, I don't know what I would have done, how I would have gotten to where I wound up without her character. So that, that's what's, you find that kind of stuff out as, as you go through the writing process. Do you have anything, Larry? I would. Yeah. Uh, what What I was going to ask you was, you wrote this Prudence character being employed at a law firm, and she's investigating. How much of that stemmed from your work and your profession as an attorney, and you know the investigations you had to done, the research and whatever? How much of Prudence? How much of you is improving? That, that's a great question. It is. And I, I think I would answer it this way. There, there's an essential role that paralegals play, both in law firms as well as corporations. And I've been in corporations my entire career. And I try to put myself in Prudence's place. It's not, un, it's not unthinkable that someone like a paralegal might be contacted by a, uh, a client. And so I put prudence in a pro bono section of her law firm and a pro bono section helps people who can't afford legal help uh, in any one of a number of, of situations in their lives, whether it's helping out with a will or a, um, a dispute with a landlord. Uh, if you need to go get a lawyer to do something, it costs a lot of money to do that. And people don't have the means to do that. So law firms increasingly have been uh, instituting pro bono sections in their firms. They've been supporting pro bono clinics. And so as, as a newbie to the profession, I said, well, and, and looking where Prudence came from and looking at the kind of work that she did to help get by and working two jobs and a very uh, dedicated worker, where can I put her in this law firm? And so I put her in a place and she excelled. Mm -hmm. she she started finding different parts she found her voice she found out where she could help how she could help use her skills use her people skills and and then here comes the part where the it comes off the rails when she found something she shouldn't have found and she's a fish out of water she doesn't know what to do uh, and so that that was part so th that part has got nothing to do with her as a paralegal it's got everything to do with her as a person who is in a place of employment, who finds something and she doesn't know what to do. She wants to do the right thing. She wants to investigate. Uh, so I suppose the investigatory part of that story could come from uh, the legal profession, because what you're trying to do as a lawyer is you're trying to find all the pieces to the puzzle and put it together, whether that's a contract or whether that's a trial. Uh, you question, you ask, you have to ask the right questions to get the right information so we can uh, prosecute our, our position, whether that's a business position or whether that's a, um, a legal position in a, in a firm, in a litigation uh, setting. Mm -hmm. So that part, you know, the, the discipline that a paralegal would have to go through in helping the lawyer find the right information, that part I think is true to life. Uh, would a paralegal find something like this and do what Prudence did? I, I don't know. Maybe that's happened before, but I just made it up. That's what I love about fiction. <laughs> okay. Um, so when you finally decided to put the book, I mean, I'm guessing in your in your mind, there was a time of period where you, you're thinking about this character and what might happen. Um, what what other kind of influences did did you maybe have that helped you to, to determine that this was going to be a book? Over the course of many years, I would get these crazy ideas and I'd put them down on a piece of paper. 
it's like a, a plot line here or a character there. And um, Eileen had been following me, picking up all that stuff and kind of, you know, I'd shove it in the drawers and she'd find it in the drawers when she'd clean out the drawers that I never cleaned up and she'd put it in a folder and, and we, I'm sorry. No, I didn't say anything. Oh, that was me. I had some yeah, I had some feedback. Sorry. Oh, that's, uh, that's and, and then when I was technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I was given the the unwanted time in the oil patch. You have you know troughs and, and hills and valleys and things. And uh, I find my I found myself uh, on the outside of the industry doing some private work while I was looking for a new job. And, and that's when Eileen says, you're going to write that book that you've been talking about for so long. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do it. And once I decided to do it, I said, I'm, I'm going to finish this thing. And um, I found a groove. I would drop my daughter off at school. I would drop my son off at school. And there was a Madeline on the way home. And I would stop there and I'd sit in the back and I'd have my coffee and my pastry, and I'd write for two or three hours, and then that was it. So I, I treated it, uh, along with working for clients and along with filling out job applications, I, I was driving myself crazy. So this was a great outlet for me. This was a goal, um, and I, I achieved it, and I was re really happy with that. I hope that answers your question. I know it kind of went on the stream of consciousness there. That, well, um... no, that that. Go ahead, Leonard. No, I, I was just saying that, you know, that answered the question. I, uh, you know, and there was some extra stuff that was all pertinent, that was good, uh, especially when he talked about Mrs. Eileen finding his notes and drawing <laughs> stuff and putting it together in the folder. And I think, I think that was right on, right on. I had no idea she was doing that. <laughs> I saw value from the beginning. <laughs> so, you did include some of your experiences in as stories within the book too. Yes. So that I think is part of the the answer to the question. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Like in Trinidad. Uh, uh, yeah, Trinidad especially, and and uh, thank you for mentioning that because, you know, you you go through through life, and there there are parts that you encounter that are really impactful to you. And for me, Trinidad was one of those because I was in Trinidad when 9-11 occurred. And it was really something, if I'm going to write this book and if I'm going to talk about the oil industry and if I'm going to talk about the kind of things I did, I want to mention Trinidad. And that was personal to me. So, you know, again, like I said before, you're writing for yourself. And so I said, I, I want to get that. I want to get that out of there because you know Eileen was was at a friend's house in Dallas, um, so she wasn't in Houston. I was in Trinidad, and you get stories from all over the country. And it's really interesting when you're outside of the country looking at what's going on, trying to picture yourself there. And I, I tell you, you know, not only did they ground all of the the air flights. Um, they were preparing for attacks in Houston as the oil, the energy center of the, of the world, really. And what are we going to do? Are we going to protect? Is something going to happen to our refineries? Is something going to happen to downtown? Nobody in the world knew what was going to happen next. And just kind of even putting yourself in that position from the outside looking in was, was really impactful. So I, I said, I got to mention Trinidad in this. Now the character that mentions Trinidad, you're going to have to find out who he is because ah. he uh, he is a fun character. I came up with. My dad said he's a psychopath, and, uh, and he is. He, he is, uh, but he's he's mission focused. He, he's not a he's not a racist. He's not a greedy businessman. He's just you you tell him what to do and he'll go do it. He's a dog on a leash, and you let him off that leash, and you don't know where he's going to go. So, so I guess that's me in some respect. I, I think I have a little bit of myself in all the characters, but uh, yeah, Trinidad is, is mentioned a few times, and that was really uh, that was really important for me to kind of mention that. Okay. So, as your profession as a lawyer, working in the in the in the oil and gas industry, 
how did you come up upon that being what you did professionally as opposed to being a defense attorney or a prosecutor, for example? How did I wind up where I was? Is that That's the question, right? How did it happen? When, when I was in law school, I was very interested in international law. Uh, I spent a summer in Cambridge, England. I went to a university at Cambridge and did some courses. And it fascinated me. And so I was thinking, well, maybe I'll go into uh, the government. Maybe I'll go into the State Department. And I, how fascinating would it be to negotiate a treaty with another country and write that treaty up and, and get it? And, and then what happened, It you, you hear it all, all the time. A funny thing happened along the way. Only thing happened along the way. I went to a friend's house, and the the only thing I knew about his father was that he was a lawyer in New Orleans. So he asks me, "What what are you doing right now? What are you working on?" And I, I told him, "I said, well, I'm not law review, but I am on moot court, and I am dealing with some uh, some side uh, organizations like the International Law Society." And then he said, "Do you have uh, time to do a project?" And I said, "Sure." So he gives me the address and come to find out he's the general counsel of a fortune 500 company at the time. I had no idea. So if you, if you look in the book and you see Prudence coming to the tower the first time on the streetcar and looking at the lobby, here I am in my early twenties. That's me. Prudence is me that particular day. I'm like, what is what is all this? And then someone says, oh, Mr. Connery, we've been expecting you. And I'm like, who the hell? Where's Mr. Connery? Is my dad behind me or something? Who's, <laughs> who's Mr. Connery? I'm just a 22-year-old knucklehead. And uh, McDermott is a company that is what's called an upstream services. They lay pipeline offshore. They build structures that go offshore. Uh, it's a very... Uh, very intricate engineering company as well. And that's how I fell into the oil and gas industry. And I've been there ever since. <laughs> so, and I'll tell you one thing, you know, when, when you're starting your career like that, and my colleagues were, were the same way when they're getting to their law firms and they're getting into their, uh, their um, corporations that they might go into as well. You, you get very academic and cerebral and you want to win the point. You know, I'm, I'm negotiating against you and I've got this particular clause I want. I've got this particular position I want. And my goal is to beat you. Well, I started working at the fabrication yard in Morgan City, Louisiana. Uh, still as an attorney, we decided to, to put some support down there. And one day I was looking outside, seeing all these massive structures being built. And I said, I'm going about this all wrong. The goal is getting the job. The goal is not winning a contractual point. Let's look at trying to, to how we can get this contract under signature. Because once we do that, there are 2,000 people in Louisiana that just got work for another two years. They're in the fabrication yard with welding torches, and they're not on the shrimp boats out, out in the Gulf. Sure. Um, in fact, in Morgan City, Louisiana, there is a festival every year called the Shrimp and Petroleum Festival because you're either out on the salt or you're working in the fab yard. So it, that's when it kind of struck me. Let's take a pragmatic approach. Let's protect the company as best we can, but let's not worry about winning every single point along the way and getting mad when you don't. So, so that part was very satisfying, too, because it was at that part that I said, look, we're going to help business. We're there to support the business, to help the business, but we're also there to protect the company's interests. So let's find that balance. Hopefully that answers your question. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Would I be correct in saying or in asking you, although you worked in the oil and gas industry, you never worked for one of the big oil companies. You worked on more of the support services side of it. Uh, the pipeline, the building the oil rigs, and what have you—that that's correct. Um, I've spent the entire time on what's called the services sector, okay. and uh, I worked with the fabrication companies. I worked with drilling companies, 
diving companies. Um, currently, I'm working for a distributor, uh, and a distributor is um, is a company who will work with the oil companies to help supply them with the things that they need with the experts that we have. Um, so a lot of different functions within the services sector, but uh, to directly answer your question, I, I've not worked for one of the big oil companies. At one point, it might have been nice to do it, um, but I, I kind of like where I am uh, helping them out. Okay. So there were, so now you, so there were, you had mentioned that there were um, some, uh, what, do you, uh, what did you call them? Uh, misconceptions. Misconception? Misconceptions about the oil and gas industry. And so give me a little bit of, flavor as far as, you know, what do you, what do you see as misconceptions about the oil and gas? Um, greed for greed's sake. No, it, it's not like that at all. And, and I've been anticipating the question because we talked about it before and things that you might want to touch on. And I'll go off on a little tangent here. And the first part of that tangent was that we have, um, you know, political uh, decisions being made um, you know, the, the pipeline that was canceled as soon as President Biden was inaugurated. You look at it from one section, you say, okay, there are people that work directly for Keystone who work directly on that pipeline. But what we don't see and what we don't consider is all of the different businesses that support the people who worked on that pipeline. So you have a company that has, it's a restaurant. It's a breakfast place. It's where the people go to, to eat and socialize and talk about the day and get ready for their work. And all of a sudden, their restaurant has to close. Nobody's there. And so the restaurant closes. And that means the distributor that brings the coffee and the eggs and all the food, that distributor doesn't have another uh, customer. So when the distributor contracts, the distributor has to shrink its workforce. And they may have to close down certain parts of, of their business. So it's, it's the knock-on effect and it's, it, it's all about going to work. We, we all want to go to work. It's all about feeding your family. And so, so it, it's not, I, I think more considerate, more consideration needs to be given to all of the things that make up that little ecosystem of, of work. And yes, at the top is the oil company. And I've worked with people in oil companies and they're good people. And you know, I've been hand in hand with them throughout my entire career. Uh, they're professionals. They want to do the right thing. They're engineers. They're they're builders. Um, so I think that's some of the misconceptions is, is the actual people that you work with on a day to day basis are just like you and me. They're, they're people. They want to go to work. They want to support their families. Um, so I, I get misconceptions. Go ahead. I get what you're saying. Um, but the other side of the, the issue, I think, is if you have a, an industry that's, that's polluting the oceans, that's polluting all the waterways, that's uh, uh, tearing up land, that's possibly creating uh, earthquakes in areas because of its activity, how do you justify the industry? just because of the ancillary jobs that are created by that industry. I, I think you justify the industry by, by looking at our daily lives. The things that we do require petroleum. They require plastic. They require a lot of the things now, now to justify pollution and um, dis destruction of property. I don't think there's really a justification for that. Um, and so it's, it's really a, a dichotomy. It's really opposing forces. How do we responsibly get the things that we need? Now, I'm on the services side, so I don't see a lot of that. Um, the things that you're talking about, uh, I don't have visibility to it. But um, it's, it's finding that balance. It's a fair point. Do you have a question, Leonard? Yeah. Um... 
following up on what Leon just discussed with you, there have been many of times, I guess, that the big oil companies, the big oil industry, has worked actively to kill legislation that would address some of these issues, uh, climate legislation. And they'll come out and say, oh yeah, we're for responsible environment, responsible change. But they work behind the scenes to kill that legislation. How much, according to to your knowledge, does the support industries work with them to keep their ancillary employment going on? Or do they, as far as you know, work with the big oil companies to kill this climate legislation that happened? Leonard, I'm very happy to say that to my knowledge, I haven't seen that part of the industry. It's there. I think we all know it's there um, to some degree, and I wouldn't cast aspersions on things that I don't know about. But what I do know about is while working in the services companies that I've worked with, uh, we have we have treated things on a transactional level. Um, every industry has its element of lobbyists, and they have self-interest, and they try to, to to get things to go the way that they wanted to go. But uh, I've been very fortunate that I, I haven't been on that side of the table. I haven't had uh, involvement with that. The involvement that I have had uh, was on the let's call it project side. If you've got a pipeline project off the coast of Ghana, if you have a, a ship that you need to build in Korea. Uh, those are the kind of things that I, that I worked on. Um, and again, I'm very happy that I have not been on that other side. So I, I wouldn't even begin to speak to that because I don't have knowledge on, of that. Sure. Just uh, for a follow-up question in that sort of vein, <clears throat> the... Oh, I guess I'll say, for lack of a better term, the personal things that you talk about, you say, you know, you bring over about 29 years of personal experience to writing your book. Yes. And what you did. And you said one of the things you had to do was predictive analytics. Now, in part of your predictive analytics side, like, for example, a pipeline off of Ghana that you that the company you're working for is helping to build. Mm-hmm. Do you look at that and say, okay, here's the environmental impact it can have on the land, on the people, on the wildlife of that land, or is that strictly up to the energy company that's going to be using the pipeline that your company helps to build? That the predictive analytics side that, that I become involved with in the, in the, and the equipment that's being made is more on how is this piece of equipment going to function? Okay. If I if I have a um, a compressor unit that's at a, a natural gas station and we're pumping gas from the pipeline, we look at or one of my clients looked at a piece of machinery that said, okay, if the temperature of this unit is such, if the viscosity is such. If we're taking samples of the oil and we're finding shavings within that piece of machinery, can we predict how this machine is going to function? And can we predict how this machine and when this machine is going to fail? So I hear what you're saying as far as predictive analytics on, on the, that side of the fence when taking uh, ecological studies and environmental studies. But again, that's something that I'm, I'm happy not to be a part of. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the equipment and I'm looking at how how things work. Okay. So. And that part's satisfying. That part's that part's fun. Sure. I I, I don't want to make it seem like uh, I'm against oil and gas. Uh, I'm not against oil and gas. Um, with any system, with any thing that we do. There are going to be pros and cons. There are going to be positives and negatives. There are going to be benefits and drawbacks. Um, my question is, have we fairly assessed the risks and rewards of uh, the fossil fuel industry 
and its ancillary um, support systems. So in, in order for the oil and gas company to do what they do, they can't do it without you. It can't, it can't happen. Right. And so, and so as a part of the whole picture, you know, are we looking fairly at just saying that the oil and gas companies are doing X, Y, and Z? Don't we have to, don't we have to look at, at everything that's involved and then again, assess the risks and rewards of all of the things that happen because, um, you have to have raw materials. You get raw materials that, that come from, you know, other areas that have to be dug out of the, the ground and, and processed. And so, and so you have your own ecosystem that you're impacting. That's correct. I, I think a way, and, and this isn't a cop out by any means, but there is always room for improvement. Um, everybody plays their part. And I think you had a great example. Um, I was involved in manufacturing for many years and we manufactured any one of a number of pieces of oil field equipment. And one is a valve. And one thing to consider is anytime you want to get a gas or a liquid, whether it's an inert gas, whether it's a gas that goes through a hospital, whether it's a gas that goes to a pipeline, it's got to go through a valve. Period. You can't have water, you can't have liquid, you can't have gas to go from here to there without a valve. So you've got to make that valve. How do you make that valve? Well, you make it with steel. How do you get the steel? Like, like you said, you hit the nail right on the head. You got to get the steel from somewhere. They've got to mine the steel. They've got to mine the ore. Then you've got to forge it. You've got to get the raw steel and turn it into something else that the manufacturer can then use to put all the pieces and all the parts. And then you've got the finished product. You've got the valve and you give it to the person who's going to use that valve. Could be an oil company, could be a drilling company, could be a hospital. Uh, you make valves for waterworks. So, you know, anytime you want to open up the tap, a valve is involved, a pipe is involved. So should due consideration be given in finding that balance between how we protect ourselves, how we protect the earth, how we protect the water systems? Due consideration definitely should be given. I don't know. How you do that? How you make that better? There's room for improvement in everything you do. But, but the reality is the things that are done are necessary for lots of different reasons. Did you have how do we come to that balance? How do we, how do we look at that risk reward? Mm -hmm. Did you have something, Leonard? <clears throat> well, I was just thinking back, kind of off the subject a little bit, just uh, going back to something you said earlier about your time in Trinidad, and you were in Trinidad when 911 happened. Uh, I'm a retired firefighter, okay. and I was a firefighter at the time of 911 uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. And I was on duty 911 September the 11th of 2001. So had that had that happened here in St. Louis, I would have been uh, probably going into one of the towers to rescue people that airlines just hit. So when you was describing your time in Trinidad, that hit me. So, uh, what, what did they come up with a defense plan of how they was going to respond had anything happened or there was a threat, you know, had they seen somebody trying to act on a threat to the oil refineries in Houston? I didn't see anything. The only thing I heard was the news that was that was, you know, given over the airwaves, and and that was um, they needed to consider Houston. They needed to consider bigger cities because there was just such an unknown and such an incredibly compacted period of time after the explosions in New York. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen next? Um, and because of Houston's proximity to the Gulf of Mexico, to all of the offshore platforms, 
with all of the, uh, the different refineries in South Texas and Louisiana specifically, how are those going to be protected? Now, to answer your question in terms of were contingency plans put in place, I, I don't know. I can only imagine that they had to have been. Right. So, okay. I, I, and I, I, I don't, I want to try to avoid indicting or in, in any way just um, seeming uh, negative to the, the oil and gas industry. Um, but I'm, um, I'm sure that you can understand people's, because you mentioned the, the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, and in the process of putting, of deciding where that pipeline went, some of the considerations weren't just geographical. They weren't just um, what is the best process. It is what resources we can take advantage of the easiest. And, and, and that all plays into the image that people have of uh, oil and gas industry. And so if, they, if they've created a negative perception and I know, I know you as a, a lawyer, you understand the need to view things in a, in a light that's favorable or unfavorable. How do, how do we get to understand that, the, that oil and gas is doing everything they can to protect people and still have a viable industry? Am I making sense? I think no. I, I think you are, and I think a lot of it has to do with communication and expanded communication, and listening to the other side, uh, trying to find something that is is the happy median, something where you can put in a necessary pipeline, but you do it in such a way that is uh, not harmful. Uh, or to the extent that something could happen, you know, anything can happen at any time. You can have one of those valves that I talked about leak. Um, what's going to happen when it leaks? Well, if it's water or gas, it's not that big of a deal in isolation. But if it's a toxic chemical, yeah, it's a big deal. So, so where do we put this thing that we need? How do we decide where it goes? How do we decide how it's uh, designed? You need to do it in such a way where it is uh, effective, efficient, and responsible. And there's there's a lot of room for communication there. And how do you do that? How do you shape policy for that? How do you shape business and have the business um, ecosystem structured such that you can actually do what you need to do? Um, I don't think there's any one answer. Okay, so I, what I don't want to do then is is end on a too serious note. So we will get back to. <laughs> I do appreciate you coming on and and allowing me to ex at least explore uh, some of the ideas I have about you know the oil and gas industry. Um, I I did not. So when I normally look at the oil and gas industry, um, I see it as one big animal. And you're pointing out it's not one big animal. It's a lot of, uh, it's 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 a head with arms, legs, and and everything else that goes with it. And so that's right. And so the 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 thing then becomes. <clears throat> so so if I have that impression, and many people seem to have that impression because you very seldom hear people talk about. Um, so with the. Um, oil leak that happened in the Gulf. Um, they didn't spend a lot of time on who made the valve. They talked about who made the valve, but they didn't spend, you know, it wasn't, mm -hmm. what, it wasn't a lot about that. It was, uh, they're blaming the oil industry for the valve and the oil industry didn't make the valve. They bought the valve from somebody else and then they had, oh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand. That's correct. That we have 
that we have these issues that it's it's simpler to talk about something um, when we can point to one entity rather than recognizing that that there are a lot of entities that go into making up quote unquote that one entity. So hopefully we can find a way to have the conversation um, and get us to a place where, you know, like Leonard mentioned, um, we understand why oil companies are uh, putting, trying to, to put legislation in that would, that keeps them from being regulated when, when regulations are what's necessary to, to create a valve. If you don't have the right regulations, you're going right. to create a bad valve. Um, and then, I, I, go ahead. I'm sorry, you expound on No, that. you're right. I mean, that's, and, and again, you, you look behind the curtain a little bit, and, and the BP uh, Deepwater Horizon disaster was a, a really, uh, it, it brought the oil industry front and center on our TVs. Uh, it was a horrible tragedy. And I tend to look at the people who died as opposed to just the pollution. The pollution is ancillary. That the Earth will clean itself somehow. Um, you you have some some men uh, who who lost their lives on that rig. And so how how did that happen? Well, it it happened because a piece of equipment um, was involved. Anytime you've got equipment, that equipment maintained, uh, it needs to be used properly. And if it's not, bad things can happen. It's a very dangerous industry. Um, there are a lot of industries that are very dangerous. Um, I, I was in a car once. Uh, it was one of those little vans that they take you from the car dealership and they bring you home. And there was a gentleman on there. When he found out I worked for a big company, he was bemoaning big companies. And I said, well, let me tell you something about big companies. I've got a supply chain. And this is kind of what I alluded to earlier as we started the discussion. I got a supply chain that's got 3,000 vendors. And of those 3,000 vendors, there might be 800 or 900 where I make up 30% of their business. So it, it it is an ecosystem. If my business is hurt, your business is going to be hurt because you exist to help me. Um, so a, a lot of people look at the head as opposed to the tail as opposed to the feet and the leg and the arm. And there's, there's a lot there. And one of, one of the things that struck me uh, working at a distributor was everything you see, everything you do comes from a boat, a train, and ultimately a truck. Think about that for a second. Everything in your house, all the materials that were built, it comes from a truck. I just found that to be a fascinating realization. Mm -hmm. And the trucks, they run on fuel, mm -hmm. they bring fuel, they haul fuel. It's, it's in every essence, a, a part of our, our lives, and it touches everything we do every day, all day. So I, I just find that part kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, One thing before, and I'm not sure where we are in time, Leon, but I, I want to mention, and I, I meant to open up with this, and, and I want all who are listening to really keep people in South Louisiana and in West Mississippi on the Gulf Coast in your thoughts and prayers. Hurricane Ida was a, a disaster in every sense of the word. Um, I have friends and family that were impacted directly and life-changing events. Governor John Bell Edwards came on TV and said, Hurricane Ida is be a life-changing event. And there are people that I know who their lives are turned upside down. Some don't know whether or not they're ever going to go back to their home. Sure. Um, some are going to have to spend months living through uh, a rebuild. Um, and that, that's, that's a tragedy that I think we need to keep top of mind. I would encourage everyone to do what they can, whether that's to donate to a charity um, and, and direct those donations towards the people who need it on the Gulf Coast in South Louisiana. Um, and I'm from that area. <laughs> I've, I've been through hurricanes. Uh, they're, they're destructive. It is unbelievable the power and the breadth and the impact that a hurricane can have on a community. And uh, I just really feel for, for that part of our country 
and uh, I hope everyone keeps that kind of, we, we don't lose sight of that right now as, as we go through this rebuild. Absolutely. And sorry for that tangent, but no. it just, I felt really compelled to say something about that. If, if, if what we do does not help people, then it helps no one. It, it, it's not helpful. Um, did you agree? We, we are actually at an hour. If you've got about four or five more minutes, we're going to give Leonard a chance to ask another question. I'll, I'll, and then I'll just seed my any. One of the things I did want to cover was um, the impact of um, green technology on your your particular company and industry. And we can do that at another time. Um, but I did want to bring that up that that was one of the things that I, uh, uh, for me, is I'm, I guess you can call me a tree hugger if you want to. I just, I believe in, in recycling <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm gonna go ahead and give Leonard the last mm -hmm. question. We do too. Yeah. I, well, I would imagine you would. Oh, I mean, Leonard, if, if you got, Leonard, if you want more than four or five minutes, I'll give you as much time as you want. Oh, I, it, 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 it's it's just quick. I uh, well, it's more a comment than a question. Thank you for coming on. I'm going to go by Amazon and order your book and read it. I See, I, I'm that. getting interested now. I'm I'm really <laughs> interested. Uh, uh, thank you for having for for being on YouTube. I'm glad, Ms. Eileen, that you decided to stay. You're <laughs> the you. first married couple that I've had the chance to interview, and I, and I think it's Queen. Like I said, just coming from that myself, it, it's just great when I see a husband and wife work together as a team on something and bring it to fruition. So thank you for the chance to talk to you guys for today. Well, thank you equally for giving us the chance to talk and absolutely to talk about uh, life in general and in the book and our professions and how how we touch lives and and uh, that that's really a a blessing and th thank you for having me and I, I very much enjoy the conversation. I agree. So thank since, you very much. Since you, so since you you put your foot out there and said you're willing to stay for a minute, I'm going to go ahead and ask that. Uh, that green <laughs> question. Um, so, so how 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 has um, the um, green technology? You know, what is, what is your company looking at as far as are they making you know changes to adapt to green technology? Are they plan on using it? Is it something down the road? Have they even you know have they decided to blow it up? I'm I'm sure you wouldn't tell me if that was the case, but you know I have to ask the question. <laughs> Sure. No, and I think it's a very important, and it's it's shaping a lot about the way that we think about what we do and how we do it. Mm -hmm. Now, specifically, my company right now as a distributor, we help people who are building something, whether you're building a windmill or a hydroelectric dam or an oil rig. Uh, if you need pieces and parts and uh, seals and valves, again, you're going to have valves going all those things. Uh, you're going to have steel involved with it. Uh, we, as a distributor, we help you. Mm -hmm. So I think what you have seen, what I've seen on the other side of the table is I've seen a lot of oil companies uh, brand themselves and move into a direction to where they're not going to go away from fossil fuels, but they are going to go towards green. They are energy companies, not necessarily oil and gas companies. And I think there's, there's, a need for that. I think there's room for that. Uh, I don't think we do it at the expense of, of killing something. I think we do it at the expense of trying to minimize the use of fossil fuels and increase the use of renewables, whether that's air or water. Uh, there's a lot of technology going on, and, and, and especially in the water, where they're learning how to use the forces of the ocean as a way to generate energy. Uh, we've seen the windmills for um, for the wind energy. Uh, we see solar, and so I, I think all companies are are looking at ways we can increase that, uh, while at the same time trying to do the things that they currently do in a more responsible fashion. So uh, I I'm I love environment. Everyone wants to have their lands clean and their water clean. Um, we all do. I think if we find opportunities for investment and we find opportunities for creativity, 
within the math and science realm, which this country really needs to step it up as far as our children and, and uh, engineers and math and things like that. The, the more innovation you have and the more educated we are, the, the more we can explore those technologies and bring them to the marketplace. You, you've got to have uh, a consumer in order to have the market. So, no, I appreciate that question. And uh, I, I think there's, there's room for that as a growing industry uh, while we lessen our, our uh, hold on, on the fossil fuel industry. Very good. Uh, one more look at the book. The book is Project Azalea. Follow the clues, find the peril. I'm sure that uh, it's going to be a read. Leonard maybe somewhere down the road will give his review of it once he's read the book. I want to thank both you, John and Eileen, for coming on the show and uh, you know putting up with our questions. It has been a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure as well, and I I really enjoyed it, and uh, hope to hear, hope to stay in touch with you guys. And Leonard, I I really want to. I really want to know what you think about the book because it's, it's very intricate. It, it hits a lot of topics, a lot of topical topics. And um, please leave, leave your review after you've had a chance to read it. Will do. Thank you very much. Will do. So th thank you for allowing me to sit here with John. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I, I, I'll be Amen. perfectly honest Amen. with you. <laughs> I wanted you to stay, but I did not want to say anything. And I want to get in the middle of that conversation. <laughs> I said, you know, she well, I'm glad you did. Agreed. It was a pleasure. Well, he when he um, when he responded for you know being a guest on the show, he included you as a guest. And I get busy and I get, I do so many things that I have forgotten. And then he mentioned it again. Uh, you know, is it okay if my wife comes on? Absolutely, bring her on. Um, and I wish we had had. had more of an opportunity to probe your mind, but we'll have to do that on the, on the, the <laughs> second book. Sounds great. Sounds good. All righty, everybody. It's we, a date. It's excellent. <laughs> so thank you very much. You guys stay All right. safe. Uh, and we will thank be you. back thank next you. week. Thank you. Bye now. All righty. Thank you, so This episode of Altitude Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes of Altitude Adjustment because it matters. And as always, look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.